Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. All right. You know, I don't normally title messages, but the last one I titled and this one I'm titling The Reluctant Deliverer. The Reluctant Deliverer. And it's actually part one. We're going to look at two parts over the course of two weeks. But this is part one. And uh, we got all the way through Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, uh, when we were studying two, three weeks ago, I guess it would be now, uh, but to kind of bring us into uh, perspective where we're at, I'm going to pick it up at verse 1 and just read those first 10 verses, and then uh, we'll talk about it a little bit, and then we'll move into where we left off in verse 11. So beginning with verse 1, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So Moses here, backside of a desert, uh, you know, a dry, desolate place. Um, we sometimes equate that, you know, as a Christians, we sometimes, you know, you talk to a brother or sister, say, how are you doing? Well, I'm... I'm going through a dry time right now. I'm kind of in the wilderness right now. I'm going through a desert in my, in my walk with the Lord. And when we say that, we're insinuating that we're kind of in a bad place, that maybe it's a dry place. You know, we're not hearing from the Lord. It's just, you know, we're just kind of like trying to survive through it. We're looking for that time of fruitfulness and, and joy again. And, and so we usually equate spiritual uh, deserts or experiences with dryness and deadness. Um, maybe loneliness and isolation, you know, it's like I don't hear the Lord or maybe you're suffering, you're going through a difficult time or you just feel like you're barren in your walk, there's no fruit. And, uh, but the thing is, it's not always a bad thing because it's usually in the desert times, those times where we're, we're you know, we're kind of like singly focused on what we're going through that the Lord can get our attention. Because if you think about it, if Moses... You know, if, if this burning bush had happened in wherever, wherever city he was in, in, in Egypt as a ruler, you know, he may not even have noticed it because of the hustle and bustle of all the things around him. And that can happen in our lives, you know. Things are going great and everything's going, you know, we don't, we don't really necessarily hear the voice of the Lord, but it's a lot of times it's through our suffering is when we hear the voice of the Lord the loudest, when we're more in tune to him. And so it says here, so when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and a large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And here's the key verse, verse 10 there. Come now therefore... I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 
So the Lord has selected a deliverer, Moses. And when we start, that's where we left off. And verse 11 is where we pick it up again. And you know, when the Lord is speaking to you and stuff, it's, this isn't a good way to start. Verse 11 it says, but Moses said to God, hey, the Lord's telling him, I'm going to send you to Egypt. He says, well, but, and he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Moses is going to ask two questions. He's going to have lots of objections, but there's two questions he's going to ask. First one he's going to ask is, who am I? Now, it's interesting that he says that because back in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is giving his defense before the Sanhedrin, he's giving them a little history lesson, and he's speaking about Moses in chapter 7, verse 23. And about Moses, he says, Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. And listen to this. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. See, 40 years ago, Moses felt the call of God on his heart to be the deliverer of, of the children of Israel. That was 40 years ago, but he's now 80 years old. He's working on his BS of D degree. That's not his Bachelor of Science in Divinity. It's his backside of the desert degree. Listen, over the past 40 years, Moses has had quite a transformation in his life. Over the past 40 years, he went from living in a palace in the metropolis of Egypt, all the comforts that a palace would afford, to living in a tent in the backside of a desert. He went from having, according to Hebrews 11, the treasures of Egypt, everything at his fingertips, at his disposal, to basically having food, having clothing, and having a roof over his head, which happened to be a tent, probably. He went from, according to Josephus, the historian, successfully leading Egyptian armies into battle against the Ethiopians. You don't read that in scriptures, but Josephus says that he became a mighty warrior and he led forces, armed forces of Egypt, into battle and was successful against the Ethiopians. So he went from being this successful Egyptian general or whatever, a, a, an army military commander, as you might call him, to leading a herd of sheep in the desert. And they're not even his sheep. You would think by the time he's 40 years old, he'd have his own business, his own, you know, he's his father-in-law's sheep. Listen, 40 years has made Moses a humble and an old man by now. And so Moses' first question is, who am I? 40 years ago, he said, I am the man. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you recognize me. I'm ready to go. 40 years later, man, who am I? And so what's God's answer? Well, it's not this. It's not, hey, Moses, you're really a great man. You just don't realize it. The Lord didn't say, hey, you have great untapped potential, Moses. He didn't say, you just need to believe in yourself, Moses. He didn't say any of that. What did he say? Moses says, who am I? God never answers it. Because why? Because it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is what he says there in verse 12. God's answer to Moses, he said, so he said, 
I will certainly be with you. Doesn't matter who you are, God's with you. In fact, God wants Moses to take his focus off of himself and onto God. Romans 8.31 tells us, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And if God's with you, man, you, you can do anything with God's power, with God's presence in your life. Verse 7, And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, can you imagine being Moses sitting there? And the Lord says, hey, this is going to be a sign that I've sent you. And Moses is like waiting, and, and God says, watch this mountain. I'm going to destroy it in front of your eyes. I'll move it from this side to that. He didn't say that. He said the sign... And this fascinates me. The sign is the end result. He says, when, not if, when you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That's probably not the sign that Moses was wanting. Moses probably wanted something more besides, I mean, he's got the burning bush in front of him, but he probably wanted something else, some other confirmation, whatever, you know. This sign requires faith. Listen, for you and I, if you know and trust God, He's going to accomplish the end result. If you, and if you know that he's going to accomplish the end result, then you know that he's going to be with you and he's going to provide everything and he's going to carry you to that end result, to get to the end result. God's assurance is the only thing Moses really needs. Moses, the Lord says, will be successful delivering the children of Israel. This is important for Moses to know because he's going to, he's going to face obstacles He's going to have difficulties leading the children of Israel. There's going to be setbacks, but the end result is promised. And Moses is going to face many challenges before this sign is manifested as we go through the, the story in Exodus. You know, for you and I as believers, in 1 John, and I know John Sustachek last week taught on 1 John, but 1 John 5.13 says this, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. If you've put your faith in Christ Jesus for your Savior, if you've confessed him, you have eternal life. But listen, he says, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Because sometimes, let's be frank, sometimes as we go through life, it's like, man, I, I don't feel like I'm saved. I mean, I feel, it's like, man, I can't believe I'm still struggling in that area in my life, you know? Um, but the thing is, you have eternal life, and God's going to see you to the end. In fact, I love what Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's a comfort for me. The salvation that the Lord began in your and my heart, he's going to complete it. He's going to complete it. It's depending on him. It's not on us. Because if it was dependent on me, man, I'd fail. So verse 13, then Moses said to God, so now here's his next question. Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So his first question is, who am I? His second question is, who do I tell them that you are? Verse 14, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And I, a lot of times I put myself in, you know, whoever's 
you know, like Moses is going through this, right? So I put myself in Moses' shoes or his sandals at this point, and I go, I wonder what Moses thought at that moment. You know, Jesus says, I am who I am. And, it, you know, I could think Moses going, I am what? <laughs> what? Finish the sentence. But you know what this does? This speaks of the all-sufficiency of God. God is basically saying, I am whatever you need. Whatever you need. Listen, in Genesis chapter 16, you don't need to turn there. We're not going to read it. But in Genesis chapter 16, Hagar, she's the Egyptian slave. You recall Abraham went to Egypt. He acquired a slave. That wasn't a very good thing. But he ended up with uh, Hagar and uh, uh, got her pregnant. And uh, anyways, she was being treated harshly by Sarah. And so she fled Sarah because she was fearing, maybe she was fearing for her life or whatever. She goes out in the wilderness and she's there by herself and, and she called out to the, or the Lord called out to her, you know, Hagar, Hagar, what are you doing here? And so she's speaking to, to Hagar and Hagar, or the Lord tells Hagar, go back, go back to, to your mistress. And there in Genesis 16, she calls the Lord el Roi, which means the God who sees. You know, the children of Israel, they're going through all these difficulties and, and it's been 40 plus years of slavery and harsh treatment and God sees it. You might be going through a difficult time in your life right now. God, God sees it. He knows what you're going through. The God who sees. Then later on in Genesis chapter 22, verse 14, Abraham is offering up Isaac on Mount Moriah. You know that story. And there the Lord God provides a ram caught in a thicket to replace instead of sacrificing Isaac. There's a substitute on Mount Moriah. There's a great Bible study in that by itself. But there Abraham calls the Lord Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. The Lord who provides. Later on, we won't get there today obviously, but in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, the Lord reveals himself as Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but Rapha. The Lord who heals. In, Je in Exodus 17, verse 15, Jehovah Nissi, the Lord is my banner. In Exodus 31, 13, Jehovah Kadash, the Lord who sanctifies you. In Judges 6, verse 24, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord who sanctified, did I say that right? The Lord is my peace, sorry. <laughs> the Lord is my peace. Psalm 23, verse 1, Jehovah Rawa, the Lord is my shepherd. And then in Ezekiel, and we, I love going through Ezekiel, but Ezekiel 48, those last chapters in Ezekiel, they're all dealing with the description of the millennial temple that will be erected during the thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. And uh, it's where the Lord will physically reign from in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And there he reveals himself as Jehovah Sham. The Lord is there. In other words, he's going to be present with his people there during the millennium. And uh, Jeremiah 23, verse 6. Jehovah Tzedek, the Lord our righteousness. We have all these descriptions of the Lord. He is whatever you need. He is and I like what the Bible says. He is my portion. He's everything that I need. Finally, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, there's a promise, a prophecy concerning the Messiah. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And Isaiah 7 verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. We find that that means God with us. God in the flesh, on earth, living among us, paying the price for our sin. And so Jesus being God, he is the I am as well. In fact, in uh, John's gospel, in John chapter 8, the disciple, or not the disciples, but the, the elders and the leaders of, the, of, of Israel, they, they're speaking to Jesus, and Jesus mentions Abraham, and he says, uh, Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And they said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to, you, say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They knew that Jesus was claiming to be deity because they picked up rocks to stone him at that point. Because according to him, he was committing blasphemy. According to them, he was committing blasphemy. Later on in John chapter 18, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, He's been betrayed by Judas, and they're all coming up to arrest Jesus to bring him, to bring him before the, the temple priests. And, and they're coming up there with torches and clubs and everything. And, and Jesus says to the crowd, he says, whom are you seeking? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And in your Bibles, if some of your Bibles, it says, I am he, but he is in italics because he is inferred. But he basically said, I am. And it says that when he said that, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus is the I am. Jesus is the great I am. And so, listen, Jesus is everything you and I need as well. That might sound kind of cliche, but it's so true. Listen, are you hungry? Are you spiritually hungry? Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Are you in the dark? I've been in the dark many times. Lord, I don't know what's going on. I don't understand what's going on here. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Do you need access to God? And we all need access to God. Jesus said, I am the way. Do you need a substitute to stand in your place, in the, in the place of judgment? In other words, so that you don't get judged? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He stood in your and my place to take the judgment that we rightly deserved. Do you need fruitfulness in your life? Jesus said, I'm the true vine. In fact, he said, apart from me, you can't do anything. We have to, be, we have to abide in Christ. Do you need eternal life? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's everything, I, everything you and I need. Paul in Ephesians 2.14 says, He himself is our peace. Now, when we were traveling to our reunion and uh, we drove through Interstate 90 and we got through Rapid City and stuff and there's a lot of touristy stuff there and eventually we were in Wyoming, there's, there's sagebrush. I mean, there's, there's not, not much there, you know, and uh, that part of Wyoming anyways. And uh, eventually we've, we went from there and we got into the corner of Montana and Montana is a big state, and we just got into that corner and we're driving, and there's nothing out there. I think the uh, where Custer was killed, I think that's right around there. Bull, uh, uh, forgot the name of the place, but anyways, you guys remember the battle, the battle of Sitting Bull? Is it Sitting Bull? 
Bull Run. Okay, whatever. Anyways, we drove right past where that battlefield was. You know, it's a big, it's a touristy spot there. But as we're driving there in the morning, um, I, and I don't know if my wife was paying attention, um, probably didn't notice it, but you know, when you when you got nothing to do and you're driving, uh, you know, so what do you look at, you know, like, oh, like you're Moses in the wilderness. Oh, there's a bush on fire. I'm going to go check it out. Well, I'm driving, you know, we're driving and, and I get passed by this Corvette and it looked like a brand new Corvette and it was a convertible, the husband and wife or boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. There's two people in the car and they blast by and they got those vanity plates. You know, you know what a vanity, vanity plate is, right? Personalized plate. And I'm reading it and it's like I've got nothing else to look at. So I'm trying to figure out what does that say? It's got an R and then it's got a T and I'm like, and it, the guy had already blown past me because they were they were cruising, and I'm like, oh, I know what it means. It means our tranquility. In other words, our peace. And I had to chuckle. Now I, I'm not judging the person because I don't know what the what you know their heart motive is. But I thought, here's a person. I go, isn't that isn't that true to our culture? You know, someone's their peace or their tranquility is a machine. It just started making me laugh. I'm like, their peace is a machine? I mean, if you think about it, a machine can break down. That means their peace, their tranquility can break down. Their tranquility can run out of gas. Their tranquility can be stolen. And if you have a nice car like that, you're always worried about it being stolen, right? I don't worry about my cars being stolen too much. <laughs> um, you worry about rust. You wouldn't drive that thing in the winter in the Midwest. You'd keep it garaged, you know, but their tranquility can rust. Eventually, their tranquility will become outdated. But you see, Jesus will never fail us. He'll never become outdated. He'll never run out of gas. I mean, he's never going to break down. Our peace will never be stolen if it's in Christ Jesus. If it's in anything else, well, who knows what could happen. I was thinking about that when we were driving. I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. I have to share that when I get back. Well, the I am, it doesn't necessarily just speak of the fact that Jesus is everything or God is everything we need him to be, but it also speaks of the self-existence of God. God is. In other words, he's not the God who was. He's not the God who will be. He's the God who is right now. God's character and nature is now in the presence and you know what? God always relates to you and I, or wants us to relate to him, I should say, in the present. God always wants us to relate to him in the present. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. If he's speaking to your heart today, today is the day of salvation. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 32, verse 6. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. Have you ever had that where the Lord's laying something on your heart? You go, you know what? I'm going to address that later. Or, or maybe speaking to you, I'm like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray about that later. I'll wait or whatever. If God's speaking to your heart about anything, or if he's laying something on your heart, deal with it right then and there. Because God is the God of now. God is there now. He wants us to relate to him in the present. Not in the past and not in the future, but right now. Well, verse 15, Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, 
and this is my memorial to all generations. This, by the way, is the first and the best Old Testament reference to eternal life. In fact, Jesus even refers to it in the New Testament. The Sadducees, they were a group of people who did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in, in, in angels and demons and miracles. They were very, uh, I don't know what you would call them, very secular Jews, I guess, at that point. Um, and they posed a ridiculously theoretical question to Jesus about a bride marrying one husband, he's got six other brothers, and each, each time the brother dies, he marries, she marries the next brother, and, and they're like, at the resurrection, whose husband is she gonna be? Because you know, she had seven husbands. And uh, the Lord God says, man, you guys are mistaken. You don't know uh, the power of God nor the scriptures. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But he basically tells them, you know, he refers back to this incident here uh, with the burning bush, and he says that, you know, basically, God didn't say I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, they're still alive. Oh, not on this earth, but they're alive before the Lord. It refutes reincarnation. It refutes soul sleep. There is life after death. This is a very good reference here in uh, Exodus chapter 3. So the Lord speaks more to Moses, verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. They, then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now when you read that, does that kind of sound like maybe it's a little bit deceptive? For the Lord saying, hey, tell Pharaoh that you guys are going to come out for three days. You're just going to go on a three-day journey to worship me. And uh, presumably, the, the assumption is they'd go back, right? So they'd be gone for a week, six days roughly. Is that what the Lord is, is saying? Is he trying to deceive Pharaoh? And once you're out of there, then you guys can hightail it out of there? It's not an unreasonable thing. Listen, they've been in, under slavery for 40 plus years. And I think what the Lord is trying to communicate is if Pharaoh doesn't even give you a week off after 40 plus years of slavery, you can bet he's never going to let you go for good. Verse 19 but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. They're not going to leave empty handed. Listen, they've been serving as indentured slaves for 40 plus years. And the Lord's basically saying, in effect, you're gonna get your back wages. You're gonna get riches. You're gonna plunder Egypt. You know, a number of years ago, and I don't know if you ever heard of it, but a number of years ago, there were some Egyptian lawyers that were trying to sue Israel based on this scripture. They wanted reparations because Israel plundered them based on Exodus chapter three. It's a true story. You can probably Google it. 
I don't, I, I don't ever, heard, I don't know if anything ever happened with that, but very interesting. So we get to chapter four, verse one. Again, the reluctant deliverer. Verse one, then Moses answered and said, but, that's the thing you just don't say to the Lord. But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. Listen, this is a hypothetical question. They never actually even said that to Moses. They didn't They never said, did the Lord really speak to you? They didn't say that. Besides, in chapter 3, verse 18, the Lord said, they will heed your voice. So Moses here is doubting God's word. We've never done that before, have we? We've never doubted his word before. Lord, I know you're going to provide, but Lord, I don't know what's going to happen here. I'm afraid I'm going to lose everything. You know, we never doubt God's word, do we? I know I do, but you guys are much better than me. <laughs> Verse 2. So the Lord said to him, what's in your hand? Or what is that in your hand? Excuse me. He said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand. That you may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So what's the symbolism behind this serpent? We don't know what kind of a serpent or snake it was. Uh, there, if you look at the Egyptians, uh, like their their crowns or their headdresses, whatever you call them, there's snakes on them typically, uh, and I think it's typically a cobra, and it was a signif signified Egyptian sovereignty. Well, the Lord is basically saying, I think, the, you know, he's sovereign over Egypt. I mean, that's you could take it on that level, but I think there's a deeper meaning behind this for both you, uh, for Moses, and of course for you and I as well. That rod, what was the rod? It was the rod of a shepherd. You know, shepherds in those days, it wasn't a noble profession uh, in Egypt. In fact, shepherds were detested. They were considered an abomination in Egypt. And this is what Moses, the former prince of Egypt, had been doing for 40 plus years. He was a shepherd. That's all he was. That was Moses' ability and experience the past 40 years. And maybe to Moses, you know, he gets to the point where God says, okay, I'm ready to use you. Go deliver the children of Israel. He's like, who am I? You know, over those 40 years, Moses might have thought, maybe this is just wasted time that I spent on the backside of this desert. But listen, none of those times are wasted. Even in our lives, it's not wasted. Those times where we go through dry times. Listen, he learned about the desert. He, I mean, he grew up probably in the temple, in, in, or not a temple, in the palace in Egypt didn't know anything about the desert. He learned about the desert. He learned how to be content with less. As a young man, he, anything, he could just, you know, uh, whatever you call it, flip his fingers, and, uh, you know, people would come running. What can I give you? But now he's out there, and he's got to fight for himself, basically, fend for himself. So he learned how to be content with less. He also learned about stubborn sheep. And listen, that's going to that's gonna play in very big because he's going to be dealing with a couple million stubborn sheep, the children of Israel. God was going to use Moses' talent, his ability, and his experiences, even that time in the desert, for his purposes. And so he says to Moses, what's that in your hand? And he said, a rod. 
And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. Are you afraid of snakes? Moses apparently was. Here's the future deliverer of Egypt. The former warrior prince of a nation. He sees a snake and he hightails it. Listen, he was barefoot. Remember, they, the Lord said, take off your shoes. <laughs> you know? So he's in barefoot. He's running across the desert trying to get away from this snake. I could just hear the, Moses, come back. You know, Bible doesn't say that, but I assume. I've got an active imagination. So then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Now, I don't know if you've ever handled snakes before, but uh, I've learned the hard way you don't pick them up by the tail. They bite. <laughs> I've tried that before and I got bit. Um, so, yeah, you don't want to pick up a snake by the tail. So then he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. You know, the question for Moses and the question for you and I, it's not what's in your wallet. You see it on the TV all the time, what's in your wallet? That's not the question. The question is, what's in your hand? What's in your hand? What are your talents? What are your skills? What are your abilities? For Moses, what was in his hand was a shepherd's staff. And we're going to see in subsequent weeks, God is going to use that staff in mighty ways. For Samson, remember Samson, the judge of, of the children of Israel? For Samson, it was a jawbone of a donkey. What would a, a donkey's, you know, half of a skull do? Half of a jaw, or what would a jawbone do by itself, nothing. But when God used it in Samson's hand, he was able to kill a thousand Philistines with it. For David, it was a sling with five smooth pebbles. And what did he do with that? He killed a giant and altered the course of an entire battle with the Philistines. For a little boy in the New Testament, it was five loaves of bread and two small fish. And with that simple thing, the Lord fed 5,000 men, and that's not including women and children. It probably would be more like 10 to 15,000 were fed. What's in your hand? What's in my hand? What are my skills and my abilities? Does the Lord want to use them? You might say, well, you know, the only thing in my hand is a wrench. I'm a mechanic. God can use your skills. Maybe it's a pen. You know, the Apostle Paul, look at all the letters that he wrote. Maybe God wants to use you in that way. Maybe it's a computer. You do computer work. The Lord wants to use your skills to glorify himself. Maybe you're in the medical field. It's a stethoscope, you know. The Lord wants to use it. Or maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, and you, what's in your hand? It's just another little child. God can use you for his glory, for his kingdom in that respect too. God can use what's in your hand for his glory, but you have to do what Moses did. What did Moses have to do? God told Moses to throw it down. What, what do you mean? God told Moses to surrender that. And for you and I, our skills and our abilities, we have to surrender them to the Lord. God's not glorified until you surrender it to him. You know, maybe you have some great talent or some great ability. Maybe you've got a great voice or you, you play instruments really well. I don't, but my son does. You know, maybe you, got, maybe you can play really, really well and, and it's like, man, that's what I do and I'm going to just, I'm going to honor the Lord with it and stuff. And, and, you know, maybe there's a little bit of pride there. You've got to surrender it to the Lord because if you don't surrender it, God won't be glorified in it. 
So Moses threw down the rod and it became a snake. He was fled from it. God told him to pick it up. Listen, Moses waited until the Lord told him to pick it back up. And in faith, he picked it up uh, by the tail and it became a rod again in his hands. Except, you know what, from now on, in like in verse 20, you can even glance down there, it's going to be called the rod of God. It's no longer a shepherd's staff. Now it's the rod of God because now he surrendered it and now the Lord's using it for his purposes. Verse 6. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, Put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom, and behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. What's the message of the latter sign of, this, of the leprous hand? Well, if you know through scriptures, leprosy is pictured through scriptures as sin. And I think what it's showing is it's meant to show, I think, how God can take something diseased with sin and make it whole again. What's that referring to? I think it's a powerful picture of your and my testimonies. We all have a testimony. Maybe, maybe you think, well, my testimony is not that tremendous. You know, I grew up in the church or whatever, you know. Your testimony is yours, and it is powerful because you're a, living, uh, you're a living proof of God's ability to transform a life, no matter what your testimony is. You're living proof, so your testimony is powerful. I think this is a picture of a testimony. Verse 9, And it shall be if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. The water, obviously, the river they're speaking about is the Nile River. And for the Egyptians, the Nile River sustained life in Egypt. I mean, that's a dry and arid place. Their life was dependent. Their livelihood, their nation the, the, was sustained by the river, the Nile River. It meant everything to the Egyptians. It was their source of pride and their power. In fact, they worshiped the Nile as deity. And so the message to the Egyptians, what you worship as God is not God. You're worshiping the creation and not the creator who is blessed forever. And I think this is a, a symbolic of the warning of judgment for Egypt. For you know, for you and I, God can use our abilities, our talents, and our experiences for his glory when we surrender them before him. God can use our transformed lives as a testimony for his glory. And, so, and, and, and hopefully you have a good testimony. You know, you're a good worker, you're a good parent, you're a good uh, member of society, whatever. Your life is a good testimony of Christ. But there comes a time when we're also called upon to warn others that what they're worshiping is false. And what they're worshiping, if it isn't the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to end in death. There comes a time when we have to. And notice it wasn't the first sign. It's not like pour blood out, you know, just show them that, that the Nile is nothing. And so, that wasn't the first sign. That was the third sign. It was after the testimony. It was after, after he used his abilities and his skills for the Lord. If they didn't, if those first two signs didn't have an impact on the Egyptians, then Moses was to perform this sign. You know, I, I've 
I've had people, I've seen people downtown, and I remember one time we came out of a restaurant downtown, and there was a guy with, you know, you don't typically, I mean, you see it in, like, TV and stuff, but this guy had a sandwich board on him that said, you know, you're going to hell on one side, and the other side said something. But, and, you know, he's screaming at people walking up and down on First Avenue. And I'm like, you know, I, I, I'm watching, it's like, everybody's ignoring the guy, and it's like, it's, what kind of impact is he having? He's probably maybe annoying some people, actually. We don't clobber people with hell right out of the gate. I know two weeks ago, John was sharing, uh, John uh, Mubarak was sharing uh, in the study about, you know, having a relation with people. You don't just, you know, you need to understand where they're coming from and stuff. And I, and I fully agree with that. I think he did a good study on that. But there may come a time in our lives when we can't shy away from speaking the truth to them in love. We can't just say, well, it's just my testimony. They'll just watch my life. You know, sometimes we need to speak too. But I would encourage you, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Let him, let him guide you and, and lead you in that. But we do, there comes a time when we need to warn people that the path that they're on, it's leading to death. So Moses is not quite sold on being God's man to deliver the children of Israel. Again, 40 years ago, he would have been, I'm there, I'm your man, you know, I'm the man, you know, but now he's not. Next week, his reluctance is going to translate into stubborn disobedience, and God's actually going to be angry with Moses. It's going to be kindled. His anger is going to be kindled against Moses. But then when we get to the end of chapter 4, there's a very, the last few verses in chapter 4 is very odd. I encourage you to read it this week and, and, and meditate on it. What, uh, there's going to be a circumstance that occurs at the end of chapter 4 that almost kills Moses' ministry. In fact, it almost kills Moses himself, the man himself. Fascinating. Uh, and we'll look at that next week as we look at part two of the reluctant deliverer. Hey, will you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. And uh, Lord, I just thank you that uh, you don't sugarcoat the lives of the people that you've used in the Bible for your purposes, for your glory. Lord, we see Moses and all his warts and all. Lord, we see his fear of snakes. <laughs> we see his reluctance to be used by you. Lord, we see his stubbornness. We also see your great love and your patience and your mercy. And Lord, we know the end result that Moses was a great deliverer of the children of Israel. And he was one who you will say later on, you don't speak to him in, in, in the cloud. You, you see him face to face and talk to him face to face. Lord, he had that kind of a relationship with you. I thank you that, Lord, we have the life of Moses to, to look at, to study, to reflect on. And Lord, as I read his stubbornness and I read his failure about his failures and stuff, Lord, it gives me courage because I know that, Lord, you want to do a work through each one of us as well. And Lord, sometimes I feel like I just don't measure up. And so thank you for the life of Moses. Thank you for the fact that you did not give up on the children of Israel, but Lord, that you, you uh, delivered them from their bondage. Lord, I pray for anybody here tonight, today, that's going through any difficulties, Lord, whether it be physical, emotional, relational. Lord, maybe they feel like they're going through a wilderness time right now. I pray, Lord God, that this would be a fruitful time in the sense that they would, they would hear your voice, your still small voice speaking to them. May you encourage them. And Lord, for all of us, Lord, I pray that none of us would shortchange what 
our abilities, skills are, whatever, Lord, that, Lord, we know that in your hands, when we surrender it to you, that you can use even what we think is a meager, a meager ability. Maybe we feel like we just have no skills, but Lord, you can use us for your kingdom in a mighty way as we surrender it to you. May we do that, Lord, with our lives this morning. So we thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can stay standing. I'll have the worship team come on back up.